Recorded? Recorded? Live. Live. This, this is an interactive, 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 interactive podcast. podcast designed for designed audience, for audience participation. participation. Come talk, come talk, 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 talk or listen live, listen live at talkshoe.com. Welcome to IAQ Radio. <laughs> Good day, wherever you are listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, and Joe, how are you? Hello, Cliff. Our cyber jockey, CJ. Zach hey, Joe, Slotnick. how's it going? Better now, Zach. We, we got the music working. Yeah, we we're got it working. Slowly but surely, we're adding some bells and whistles as we uh, move along here. I expect soon that, uh, oh, yeah, I see actually our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is also on the line. Can you say hello, Dieter? Good morning, Dieter. Or good afternoon. Oh, there he is. Hello, Dieter. Dieter, hello. Hello there, good afternoon. Back from Jamaica, our technical director, back with us here. How was the vacation? And I just swallowed a peanut, so I'm coughing. (laughs) That's why we couldn't hear you. (laughs) Dieterman. Anyway, Dieterman. Dieterman. How are you? So were you hiding from the lawyers and avoiding the um, expert witness stuff uh, for the last week or so? I have an envelope... uh, about three inches thick in front of me, and I have to work later on again <laughs> on another we'll cold you, case. We, we will let you recover your uh, your voice there, and uh, we'll come back to you in a moment. Yeah, just uh, mute me until I clear that. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dieter. All right. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors today. Uh, first is uh, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. And our other original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. We have two excellent guests today, Elisa Larkin and Andy Osk. They're both on the line with us now, and we will get with them in just a moment. But before we do, to contact the show, like to re, uh, remind our listeners that we are live every Friday at noon, sometimes five after, but we get on sooner or later. And uh, this is an interactive talkcast designed for audience participation. You can go to the uh, talkshoe.com website, T A L K S H O E.com, and you can just listen if you'd like, 
or if you'd like to text a question or call in and ask a question live, you can call or you can go to the TalkShoe site, then uh, you can get yourself a PIN number, triple seven, uh, seven digit number, uh, four, well, actually, I guess you want 10 digits in there. And uh, we recommend you use your mother's phone number. And the TalkCast ID is 1547. Now, we've got through that. What I'd like to do is, first of all, do a little bit of an introduction on our first guest. Today's First guest, uh, well, I'm sorry, I left out the microband trivia question, Cliff. Well, I think in deference to one of our guests, uh, Andrew Ask, uh, we are going to go into the field of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning for this question. Uh, what we're looking for is the type of an older furnace that does not use a blower, and what we're looking for is some of the name, the type of furnace, and also the principle upon which it works. So it's an older type furnace system that does not uh, use a blower. We're looking for the name of this type of furnace and the principle upon which it operates. Thank you, Cliff. Our first, our first guest today is Elisa Larkin, who actually grew up in the construction industry, working alongside her father. And that's back in the days when kills was the prescribed treatment for mold growth. While studying political science at the University of Oklahoma, her family experienced mold growth in their rented condominium. She uh, used her, this experience in her studies and authored a couple of research papers while she was in school and then founded Mold Relief, Inc. A, in January of 2003. This was a nonprofit organization that was able to help hundreds of families. She uh, helped get legislation introduced and passed in Oklahoma, separating consulting and remediation services, and she served on the Mold Remediation Task Force for the state of Oklahoma. In the last few years, Lisa has been working in the indoor air quality consulting and remediation field as a mechanical hygiene supervisor and water and fire damage restorer. She has also been an active member in Burma and served on several committees there, is on the advisory board for the Commercial Builders and Architects Magazine, and has several certifications through the Indoor Air Quality Association and the IICRC. Most recently, she was serving on the IICRC S520 Standards Revision Committee and went on to become the chair of the Inspection and Preliminary Determination Chapter in May of 2006, and we will talk more about that in just a moment. Elisa, do we have you online? Yes. Good morning, Elisa. Thanks for joining us and hanging in there while we got through the uh, introductory and uh, some of the other information we have to go through. What I'm curious about to start with is, could you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to get into the indoor environmental quality field? Um, sure. In uh, June of 2002, I was running a condo that developed um, a mold issue, um, a series of unfortunate events. Uh, if you've ever read those books, led me to start a nonprofit agency called Mold Relief Incorporated. Um, <clears throat> so through that experience, you know, I, I found there was a lack of education and consumer uh, information out there that wasn't either geared to scare people or to um, guide them in, in a calm, rational manner. 
And you went on to lead that organization for, what, a few years, I believe it was? Yes. And then since then, you've been actually involved in the actual uh, investigation and remediation segments of indoor environmental quality. But and, not at uh, the same time. <laughs> but not at the same time. That's one of, I know that's one of your pet peeves there with that Oklahoma legislation that you uh, were instrumental in getting passed. Well, you, you have a varied background, and I guess I'm curious, which, which do you prefer? Do you prefer to being on the investigative side or on the remediation side? I like the remediation side. Um, gives you an opportunity to actually see um, the difference that you're making in the industry. So you can actually, excuse me? <laughs> Satisfaction of a job well done. Satisfaction, great. And most recently you, you volunteered in, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly when you started on the IICRC's S520 committee, but for those of you that aren't familiar with the S520, it's an industry standard developed by the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, and it's for professional mold remediation. It initially came out in, I believe it was December of 2003, uh, and they are now in the revision process and attempting to revise the document. These are living documents that are revised from time to time and actually under continuous revision. And during this revision session, the IICRC received their anti-accreditation and also was attempting to and is continuing to attempt to have this standard become an ANSI-accredited standard as well. And Alyssa, I, I understand you started out on one of the committees and then became the chairman of the committee. Could you tell us a little bit more about how that occurred? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, well, I was asked to step in as chair. Um, there was some um, issues that were tying up a lot of committee time. We were having a hard time gaining um, industry acceptance or uh, consensus body acceptance. Um, there were, had been an appeal filed internally on our chapter, and at that point, I was asked to step in as chair to help resolve those issues. And that's the preliminary determination chapter? Yes. So the preliminary determination being the, for those of listeners that aren't as familiar with the document as we are, the preliminary determination, as I recall it, would be what the contractor does when he arrives on site, he or she arrives on site, they make a preliminary determination about the extent of the contamination and whether or not they need to bring in a third party to assist them on that project. Is that somewhat accurate? Yes, yeah. Um, the inspection, it's actually the inspection and preliminary determination chapter, and all it is is a guideline for once you get the call from a client or a potential client, um, it, it gives you recommendations about what kind of information that you're going to need to gather as the remediation contractor in order to complete the job. And then 
part of that is determining whether or not you um, have enough information, and if not, what all professionals you need to call in to ensure that you have all the information you need to complete the job um, satisfactorily. Let's, let's get a terminology correct here again now so that everybody's on the same page. When we say inspection and preliminary determination, that's the contractor coming in. If they determine that they need more expertise or that it is a job outside of the typical scope of what they do or there are health concerns and there are other reasons why they would do this, they are then recommended to bring in a third party to do what we call an assessment. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay, so we will use inspection and preliminary determination as the process that the contractor, remediation contractor, performs, and then assessment would be done by a third party. The third party currently in the current version of the S520 is referred to as an IEP, an indoor environmental professional. Correct. Excellent. Now, we can uh, quickly just, if you could give us a little bit of background on uh, what what kind of issues led to, well, maybe I should give the listeners a little bit of a background. You apparently have had an issue with respect to how the procedures have gone with respect to uh, updating and revising the standard, and you filed an appeal to that. And I'm curious if you could uh, elaborate a little bit about what led to the point where you were filing this appeal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an excellent question. Um, in January of this year, we had a meeting in Las Vegas in which um, we gained a full consensus body vote on the document, and it was sent to editing at that point. Um, what then transpired was um, the peer review members, uh, or went out for peer review, um, and I believe it was August, at which point um, there were several several people who had problems accessing the document. Um, there, there was wording in there that um, the committee members had never seen before. Um, there were uh, deletions that people didn't remember deleting. So there were all kinds of questions surrounding those issues. We also had issues with the rouster, um, who the members were, uh, what their affiliations were, and um, maintaining those records uh, in, in a manner consistent with uh, their ANSI accreditation. So that's kind of what led me to uh, making a decision, first of all, to resign from the committee. Um, I had exhausted all efforts to work within the committee. It became adversarial. Um, on, on my part, uh, out of frustration. And um, at that point, I submitted questions. That was back in August. I submitted questions to the IICRC um, requesting information on how they had upheld their policies and procedures. Uh, I did get a phone call, but nothing in writing. 
Um, and then once we started the peer review process and the issues still were not being addressed, I resigned and uh, filed an appeal. Alyssa, this, this is Cliff. I, have, I just wanted to clarify something. Uh, one of the things that I believe that I heard you say is that you, know, you had some frustration and you tried to resolve this within the committee. What my question is, is did you try to resolve your questions and problems and concerns about the system within the system? Did you appeal this to the standards leadership? Did you, uh, you know, speak to them either verbally or in writing in order to try to work this through the system? Yes, I, actually I did both. Um, first, I questioned um, and, and got you know, some answers um, that appeared to be kind of vague in nature to me. Um, they didn't actually come out and answer any of my questions. So I um, put together a list of questions and I enlisted the help of other committee members. You know, do you guys have any questions that haven't been answered? And, and you know, we'll submit this to them and, and see, you know, what, how they respond to that. Um, the procedure for doing that was, you know, I, I submitted the questions to the chair of our committee who forwarded them on to the standards committee chair. And um, I received a phone call back from the consultant um, asking me to help, you know, help him resolve the questions that I had and, um, you know, work work together to to get them resolved. And so that is initially, you know, what we tried to do. By the time connections came around, it was pretty adversarial and um, evident that uh, I was not going to be able to get a response in writing or answers to the questions that I had asked. Well, before we go any further, let me just let our listeners give them a little bit more background information. The it is my understanding the chairman of the revision committee has resigned. That two other subcommittee, I believe, chairs besides you have resigned, and I know one other subcommittee chair has filed an uh, appeal and protest. So it doesn't sound like this is something that was um, just you and that you had uh, some kind of uh, adversarial relationship with with the people in charge of the uh, of the of the group or of the committee so i'm wondering if you know your your concerns appear to be more procedural in nature and i we've talked a little bit about this you you are a proponent of the document you like the document but I believe your problem has been that the policies and procedures that should have been followed were not followed, and I'm just wondering what what do you think the reason for that was? Is it inexperience in doing ANSI accredited standards? Was there incompetence? Was there some kind of other problem that we're not aware of? I I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you think it's a combination of those things? <laughs> that is on the spot. Um, yeah, no, that's okay. I really cannot address um, what the motives were for not following, you know, the, their own policies and procedures. 
I can say that at the start of the process, um, the first meeting that we had, all the chapter chairs were given a copy of the policies and procedures manual that had been submitted to ANSI for their accreditation. Um, what most people don't understand is that the standard itself does not have ANSI accreditation. What ANSI accreditates is their policies and procedures. So an organization would, sub would submit to ANSI a copy of their policies and procedures manual. ANSI would then look at them, recommend any changes if necessary, and then they should be resubmitted back to ANSI for accreditation. Once they gain that accreditation, it is only on their uh, policies and procedures. You know, this is, this is the rules of engagement. So we received a copy of the policies and procedures manual, um, and along with, you know, talk of, of this is what we're supposed to do. These are, are how we are going to conduct ourselves as members of this industry to write these standards. Those policies and procedures were violated um, numerous times throughout the process. It wasn't just once or twice. Um, it wasn't just at the end of the process. You know, from uh, this, uh, from the stamp, my standpoint, um, if you put out rules of engagement, then you are holding yourself accountable for the way you conduct business. And if you're not accountable, then, uh, or if you're not responsible in abiding those, by those rules that you set for yourself, then someone needs to hold you accountable. So, so Okay, not to jump in, but essentially the process of putting together the standard is more important than the work product. What ANSI accredits is the process for putting it together. So actually what you've challenged and what you've questioned is really more important, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Because how can you have an industry-recognized standard if the policy or if the process was not transparent. Um, if you can't follow the process, then how is the industry supposed to rally behind it? And if you can't get the industry to rally behind it, how do you expect the general public to rally behind that? And, and so you know, that was my main concern, is that during the drafting of the first document, there was a lot of rumors and insinuendos about um, about the document, most of them were the same issues. And that's why it didn't gain the acceptance that it should have was because of the violations of the procedures. And so here we are again, you know, now with a policy and procedure manual in place, and, and we have the same issues, and, and that shouldn't happen. Alyssa, Joe mentioned that several notable volunteers and contributors to that document also submitted their resignation. So there has been somewhat of an exodus uh, of important people, influential people in that document. My question to you is, did any of these people pressure you, ask you, come up with this idea of filing the appeal, or was this totally independent? <laughs> wow. Um... 
the decision to actually file the appeal was my decision to make. Um, have other people talked to me about it? Absolutely. You know, from the committee, you know, we're all under confidentiality. Um, so within our committees, we can, you know, we have some, some freedom to talk amongst ourselves. You can't talk outside the committee, that kind of thing. So there was some discussions within the committee members to determine, you know, what was the best course of action for getting our getting answers to our questions. And when I received no answers um, being on the inside, I felt like this was the only alternative I had was to put them in writing and make it a formal appeal. So that was my own decision. Are your concerns shared by others on your committee? Or can you tell us that? Um, hmm. There has been questions received from several members, not just me, not just other people who have resigned. And are I these, don't know if they've been answered yet or not. Are these similar concerns to what the previous committee chair had? The of my chapter? Yes. Um I couldn't really say, you know, what his um you know, his exact concerns were. He would need to answer that. But okay. um, you know, I, I would say that there were concerns shared by several members of the consensus body. You know, in reviewing your complaint, uh, some of the words that I found within the complaint were undue influence, dominance, biases, and coalitions. And these are serious these are serious concerns. Can you expand upon any of those, or would you like to expand upon any of those? Well, um, I think that from the policy and procedure manual that IICRC produced for us, the policy number is 4.2.2, balance and lack of dominance, and it says the standards development process should have a balance of interests and shall not be dominated by any single interest category individual or, or organization. Dominance means a position or exercise of dominant authority, leadership, or influence by reason of superior leverage, strength, or representation to the exclusion of fair and equitable consideration of other viewpoints. Um, reading from the objection that I filed, the IICRC representative stated at the first meeting of the revision committee that two people from the same company would not be allowed to be chapter chairs. This statement was set forth as the rules for the committee to prevent bias and dominance of the consensus body to protect the credibility of the standard. This rule has not been enforced as there are several committee chairs who are either employed and or compensated by other committee chairs, thus forming a dominant coalition. And, you know, I, I'm glad you uh, went directly to the wording within your appeal. I think that's probably a good idea from here. 
uh, on out to try and stick with the exact wording within your appeal because it's you know this is a, a very important process. There is a complaint and appeal process. I'm I'm curious though, have you received any correspondence back from the IICRC about your formal complaint and appeal? No. Um, they have 15 days from the date that the appeal was filed to issue a formal um, response, and, and that has to be in writing. What about conflict of interest? The appeal also dealt with the issue of conflict of interest. Uh, can you expand upon that? Let's see if we can find that yeah, we can find section it. for you here. I would like to. That's okay. If you if you can't locate it right now, that that's fine. There's, right. There was 14 violations, so I'm sitting here going, okay, which one was that? You know? Well, I I'm looking at uh, number 11 here. 11.2 statement from patent holder. Oh, that's okay. that's a different section. Yeah, that's a Did different you, issue altogether. Which is a big issue, actually, and maybe we could expand upon that for just a moment. Um, pa patent holder, this is, oh, actually, Cliff found uh, violation number five, I guess it would be. So if we go back to number five, obligations, and membership states that all IICRC consensus body standard committee members and associated subordinate body members shall comply with all IICRC rules, regulations, requirements, and policies, including the IICRC antitrust policy, the IICRC code of ethics, conduct, and confidentiality non-disclosure bias policy. And you had an objection there under number five. Can you? Well, actually, I've got a specific question prior to her answering okay. it. And what I'd like to know is whether or not, as a committee chairman, were you permitted to see the con well, first of all, do you know whether or not the consultants for the IICRC, technical director and consultants, filled out confidentiality documents? I do not know. Okay. So essentially, you just told me that you've never seen them. No. I've never okay. seen anyone's documentation. Thank you. Okay. And your objection under number five was it's been two years since the committee members have signed and or revealed conflicts of interest, new affiliations, etc. So I, what I'd like to focus on there is what you feel is the specific remedial action. Could you give our listeners your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, each committee member should re-sign new documents on a bi-yearly basis or anytime new affiliations or new positions are obtained and that committee members should then be updated on any and all changes. Uh, now, I guess, you know, you've got 14 different violations here, and, and I'm wondering, what ultimately, what do you hope will come from this? Do you hope it will go back to the committees and start all over again? Do we scrap the whole document? I mean, I, I don't think you want to go to that extent, but what what would you like to see happen here ultimately? That's an excellent question. Um, ultimately, what I want to see is a fair, unbiased, transparent 
um, process, you know, be conducted utilizing their own policies and procedures. Um, I don't want the document scrapped altogether, absolutely not. You know, there's a lot of volunteers who spent many, many hours and resources, you know, um, putting this document together. Um, to lose that on a, you know, on, on technical um, procedural violations would be a shame. Can it be fixed at this point is my question, and I believe that the answer to that is yes. You know, in uh, the beginning of the year, in January, at our last meeting, um, well, they're in a meeting right now, um, we had a consensus vote on each chapter. What I would like to see happen is that we go back to where we had consensus, um, if they would like to add, I, you know, we got a lot of good comments during the peer review process. Um, if they want to incorporate some of those, that would be great. You know, give it back to the committees, let them hash it over, and then revote. You know, then send it out for peer review. Uh, I think the peer review should be separate from the public review, and it can't be limited. You know, you can't say, oh yes, you can review it. Um, Joe, but Cliff, you can't because you know uh, we would then have too many reviewers. I, I don't think there is such a thing as too many reviewers. Uh, in particular, when you have the committees going through all of the comments, um, is it cumbersome? Yes, but you can't put you know you have 30 days to review all of the comments that have been submitted and make your recommendations. I think that's unrealistic. Um, so I think that going back to when we had a consensus vote, pulling it from you know the peer review process and the public review process, going back through from that point forward would be a good idea. After it gets through editing yet again, then it should go back to the committee so that the committee can then um, you know vote on the editing changes that were made. Then it can you know go from there. Well, we're getting short on time, and we, first of all, would like to thank you for coming. Also, invite you back in the future because we think that this subject uh, is getting more intense uh, as we go. And what we like to do with all of our guests is give them the final word. So, is there anything that you'd like to add? Is there anything that you think that we missed? And if you think we were too tough, you can tell us on you. <laughs> um. There is, I guess, one thing um, that should be mentioned, and um, that is what is the um, organization that sponsors the standard, you know, what are they, uh, what is their responsibility? And that's been a big question because from the standpoint of standard writing, you know, it is an industry document. It is not an organizational document. As such, the sponsoring organization has responsibilities for providing a venue for the industry leaders to come together to write those standards. They're responsible for supplying the support staff, a consultant if needed, you know, to organize the meetings, documents, records. Their job is not to be involved in the actual writing of the document or the direction in which it takes. That's up to the industry leaders that make up the specific standard consensus bodies. 
to become involved in the actual wording of the document is not part of their duties or responsibility. Um, they are also respo responsible for writing policies and procedures for the committee to follow, not abiding by those rules that they've set forth, um, then it is no longer an industry standard, but an organizational one. So in order to gain, you know, of applying for ANSI accreditation, kind of puts them in the spotlight and holds them to a higher standard. And to be a leader in this industry isn't necessarily about how many standards you can write or what your accomplishments are, but how you conduct business. So I would say, you know, to ask, you know, are you doing the right thing? And, and holding to the standards that you set forth when stepping up to the plate like that. That's, and that's an excellent summary for uh, the entire industry to hear. And I'm, I'm you know, I'd like to just thank you from uh, myself and from Cliff, first of all, for coming on the show. Secondly, for you know being willing to stand up and. Speak for what uh, you know. Speak about things that you feel strongly on, and uh, also for your tremendous amount of volunteer time that I know you and many others put in on this document. We, you know, we're not here to trash the document. We think it's a, a good document. There's a lot of good information in there, and we we think the people that worked on that document worked very, very hard, and that we're just hoping that there's some way to salvage it and bring it back within the. Uh, Within the policies and procedures, and get something that, like you, like you, um, so, you know, put it so well, something that the industry actually has developed, and uh, will, you know, then become something that will be followed by industry people, as opposed to ignoring it. So, I'd like to thank you for that, and I, we also generally ask that at the end of each session, if you have a way that people can get in touch with you in case they have additional questions, uh, could you let us know what that is? Sure. Um, probably email is the best way, and that email address is e-l-i-r-e-s at yahoo.com. Very good. Very good, Elisa. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show here, and I I, we probably could have gone on for another hour with these fourteen different things, but let's let's see what happens in the meeting here this week, and then maybe we'll we'll bring you back. I understand that the committee's meeting this week, and uh, they're going to, I'm sure, look at your appeal and other appeals, and the fact that people have left the committee, and let's uh, encourage them to do do what's necessary to fix this and get the whole industry back behind it again. Thank you. For All right. Me. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Let's see if we can uh, get a little technical expertise in here. Cyber jockey, before we get into second. How long have you been Andy, that was just for you. We uh, we now have an expert actually coming on. Andrew Ask. Andrew is a PE and consulting engineer located in Cape Coral, Florida. He specializes in diagnosing, remediating, and retrofitting existing HVAC systems for the purpose of improving performance, energy utilization, and indoor air quality. Work that now includes evaluating building envelope performance, something we'd like to talk a little bit about. Uh, his practice includes the preparation of mechanical, electrical, 
and plumbing design documents. He has written for trade publications. He is now a member of the board of directors of the Indoor Air Quality Association. His background education-wise is uh, Iowa State University Bachelor of Science and Engineering and Akron University School of Law Juris Doctor. And Andy has been working in the consulting industry for 21 years now. The past 15 years have been devoted solving to solving humidity problems and replacing HVAC components in southwest Florida buildings. Welcome, Andy. Good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. Great to have you on, Andy. And uh, can you, um, if you could just mention a little bit more about the, uh, I, I, I always find it interesting that you have this uh, law degree and that at one time, I believe, were you a practicing attorney? I, no, I wasn't. Um, I, I I never left the legal field because I never entered. Uh, about halfway through law school, that was at night about 40 years ago, uh, I decided simultaneously uh, that I liked HVAC, wanted to stay with it, wanted nothing to do with law or lawyers, but wanted to finish my legal education. And I wouldn't trade the, the law school experience for anything. That's one of the highlights of my life. That's that's interesting that you uh, – and I know it's very helpful – especially now that you're on the uh, bylaws committee with the IAQA, and it's great to have someone with your background uh, assisting the group in that. Phil has a question for you. What are the most common misconceptions about HVAC systems that consumers, installers, and investigators have, Andy? Um, I would probably, the first one I particularly in our climate identify is, the need or the the uh, compulsion to turn down the thermostat. People think you need to turn down the thermostat to lower the humidity. That's the exact wrong thing to do. In our climate, you turn up the thermostat to reduce the humidity, particularly when you go home uh, for the summer. Um, the stepping back a bit from that, people need to remember air conditioning is a problem, not a solution when it comes to building envelope and uh, indoor air quality issues. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, what uh, mold or any microbial growth sees is relative humidity. Now, they're, they're looking for water. And the higher the relative humidity, as that approach gets closer to 100%, we're more likely to have water activity after which mold can form. Uh, that has nothing to do with the total amount of water in the air. So there's, there's, there, there's two ways to reduce relative humidity. One is to reduce the amount of water. Yes, you do that when you run your air conditioner, but that also reduces the temperature, which just raises, it's kind of hard to follow, raises the humidity. The other way to do that is uh, let, let the space get warmer. The warmer the air is, um, the more moisture can occupy that space, and uh, the lower the relative humidity for given moisture content. Now, if that's too tough, uh, let's just look at another way. Uh, heat dries. You let your space warm up, it'll dry out. What temperature do you recommend? Um, for when you're in the space, simply as warm as uh, you can have it and be comfortable. The object is to be comfortable. Now, if you have proper humidity control, a separate dehumidifier, which I think everybody should have, every, every building needs dehumidification, at least, in, again, in humid climates, uh, you can be pretty comfortable at 74, 75, even 76 degrees. I'm not telling anybody what temperature they ought to be at. 
so that the temperature would be comfortable. When you're away for long periods of time or at night, um, set the thermostat up to around 85. Uh, you certainly don't need any, any cold cooler than that. Uh, at night, particularly in a school building, um, you can either let the children run all night and just run and huff and puff and pull the temperature down to about 68 degrees and get condensation forming and use a lot of electricity, or you could turn the air conditioner off and let Mother Nature heat up the school, thus, re- thus drying it out, reducing the relative humidity. Do the math on that and make it make it make your own choice. Now, what are some of your pet peeves about the design of these HVAC systems? Well, well, first of all, most uh, most people that I work with would, would, would tell you would tell you I'm the pet peeve. I get that a lot. <laughs> Um, the the problem with the design of our HVAC systems is there's a uh, systemic incompetence in the HVAC design profession. The way the HVAC engineering, HVAC uh, industry is structured, and I'm being very narrow here, I'm not broad brushing to any other industry, not even plumbing or electrical, I'm talking about HVAC, is the way we're set up, the worst engineers become consultants. That's not true in structural or other fields of endeavor. Or if you can't sell trade equipment, if you can't be a contractor, if you can't be a rep to sell fans and grills and so forth, if you flunk out all of those, then you become a consultant. Um, I don't have, now I'm a consultant. I don't happen to think I'm stupid, and, and most people don't think I'm stupid. I am, however, eccentric and lazy. I have other, <laughs> I have other reasons for, for being a consultant. So what the owner can expect, uh, and this isn't going to change. It's been this way since longer than I've been around. It's going to continue this way, is that... Uh, of the HVAC people in this new building, the consulting engineer is probably going to be the dumbest guy on board. He, in turn, is working for an architect who is at best indifferent. It's virtually impossible, virtually impossible for the HVAC, HVAC system to get designed and installed properly in the building uh, from the get-go. And I'm sorry, I have a question. I should have recorded that because we're on the air. Andy, do you think a technology gap exists uh, between all the components that actually make up an HVAC system. We have components uh, that are now designed to be more efficient in terms of you know, the air handling and the processing and the coils and so on and so forth. We have very sophisticated controls. Uh, and to me, um, do you think that the duct work, it's something that hasn't changed. It's like building a new railroad train and putting it on old tracks. It, it's like always bothered me that the, it seemed to me that the duct work is the, you know, there are holes in it. It doesn't seem efficient. I just wondered whether or not you agreed or disagreed or whether ductwork bothers you. Uh, ductwork bothers me. I, I probably would not. I probably don't see the problem exactly as you do, Cliff. Uh, uh, ductwork design and sizing is pretty simple if you uh, put your mind to it. Now, maybe what you're alluding to is uh, have we adjusted to the differences in efficiency and sensible heat ratios and the differences in our buildings, the insulation and, and uh, heat-reducing glass we're using. No, I think that old guys like me that are still flapping duct systems and air handling systems in uh, probably pretty much the way we did 30 years ago, and uh, we're not so much ignorant of, the, of what's being done in buildings, is we don't trust the other people in the team. That's uh, this distrust within the, 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 the various parties is, is more the underlying issue than anything. Or I don't really give the architect credit for knowing how to insulate the building. I don't give him. He's not going to tell the contractor. I don't trust the contractor to actually seal the building, get the insulation in properly. After which, I pretty much put the same old system 
in that I always have, regardless of what's going on in the building. I, I tried. I'm, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating that to make a point. I understand. And I, we uh, talk. I, I don't know whether or not you get involved in this or not, but there's there's a lot of uh, duct cleaning ads out there. I run up everywhere I go, Andy. I I grab a newspaper, and sure enough. Somewhere somebody's going to clean all of the ducts in your home for ninety nine ninety nine, or I've seen them as low as twenty nine ninety nine. What what are your thoughts on the duct cleaning industry in general? Is that something you talk about? No, no I have very little exposure to uh, duct cleaning. Uh, there's where I think I'm guilty of being a uh, design and construction person, and not a, and uh, like a lot of us, I'm not a maintenance person. I try to be sensitive to maintenance. I try to design systems that can be maintained. But uh, once the system's up and running, uh, I, I go down the road. Uh, oddly enough, in the uh, uh, first uh, 40-some years here, I haven't run into a duct cleaning application yet. That's interesting. So you don't get involved in the maintenance, but do you leave behind a operations and maintenance program for the building owner to follow? Uh, what you can expect out of me on a typical small building is uh, my job is to design a system that can be maintained, and that's mainly that's a couple of things. That's uh, that involves providing space so you can get the, to the air handler and any other moving parts to work on them. Uh, that's a real challenge by itself. And uh, probably the other single most important thing we do is to, or should do, is to provide for the installation of a properly selected and sized filter that again is accessible for for cleaning. Uh, that's where a lot of our maintenance falls down. Is the uh, the systems simply are not are not not set up for proper air filtration. Andy, are you a proponent of installing HVAC system components on rooftops on flat roofs? Uh, interesting enough, yes. Um, there is only one one correct place for an HVAC system, and left on a rooftop. Uh, we need a couple hours to explain that, but that's uh, you again. Maybe anticipating your your question or your the issue there. One of the problems we're going to do is almost every building scientist and every indoor air quality uh, expert recommends against having HVAC equipment on the roof for their own reasons, leaks and so forth. Unfortunately, that's the only place that an HVAC system really works. I have a rooftop in my own house, for example. Only place an air conditioner goes. That's that's interesting advice, and uh, we will definitely uh, talk to you a little further about that down the road when you're when you're prepared for that. But you mentioned a little bit about building scientists, and um, I noticed in your in your little biography we did here that you do now evaluate the building envelope performance. Can you describe for our listeners first of all what? you consider to be the building envelope and then maybe talk a little bit about how you um, evaluate these building envelopes and what type of maybe testing you use or don't use. Okay, the um, to an HVAC and air quality person, uh, there are three components to the building envelope or enclosure is a word we're, we're trying to get away from envelope. Uh, that sounds like a number 10 or something that junk mail comes in. <laughs> or, uh, even though I still like envelope, we're trying to call it the building enclosure. Uh, made up of, of for our purposes, uh, three three barriers. Um, 
vapor, thermal, and air. Uh, the least important, believe it or not, is the vapor barrier. Um, the vapor barriers are very difficult, are very, very, very problematic. Um, the best way to make sure that you don't screw up the vapor barrier is to leave it out. Uh, one of the better vapor barriers we're finding out, for example, is tar paper. Uh, if, if you don't know anything else about building science, put tar paper on your new, new house. It'll work just fine. Um, then, of course, we have to have a, a thermal barrier to insulate the house from heat or cold, as it were. And most important, we need an air barrier. That's a barrier that keeps the outside air outside and the inside air inside. Uh, the thermal barrier won't work without the air barrier. Uh, and that's the one we have the most trouble with, meaning in the south here in particular, uh, if you live with people in warm climates can't sense air drafts coming out of their house. In Pittsburgh, I don't, have to, I don't have to teach people about air barrier. You understand air barrier. In Fort Myers, uh, people don't understand air barrier, and we have a hard time getting an air barrier. We, we test that, incidentally, with a blower door test. We simply draw a vacuum on the house and see how much air it takes to hold a given vacuum. That's that, that so, quick, quick and dirty on the, air, on the, on the uh, building enclosure. You know, you mentioned Fort Myers, and we've mentioned Pittsburgh. Are different HVAC system designs and components needed in different climates? Uh, less, than, less than you would think. Um, I've worked in up the road from you in uh, near Youngstown. I worked all along the Great Lakes. I spent a lot of time in Minnesota uh, and uh, Chicago, including Chicago now in Florida. Uh, on the air conditioning side, there isn't that much difference. I mean, the, the air conditioner in your house or on your office building in Minneapolis looks pretty much like it would here in uh, Fort Myers. Uh, the heating would be different. Uh, you might have a 100,000 BTU furnace on a house in uh, Minnesota and uh, we might have 15,000 BTUs here, and if your house, if you have, if you have a good thermal, thermal and air, air barrier, um, we may not need any heat. Uh, we do, however, need more dehumidification here than we do other places. The humidity isn't any, any higher in Minnesota or in Pittsburgh than it is here, but it goes on for a lot longer. It goes on all day, every day during the summer. So there's probably actually less difference in the HVAC systems than one would suspect. And there's a uh, standard that I know you're familiar with, and I would like to quickly mention yes. for our listeners, ASHRAE 62.2, yes. which is now residential ventilation. Can you give us a little bit of uh, background on that and explain to the listeners how that is affecting the installation of new HVAC systems? All right, ASHRAE has been working on a long time trying to develop a residential ventilation standard. Uh, it's 30-some years since ASHRAE issued its first uh, standard on indoor air quality, uh, which is essentially a ventilation standard. Uh, finally, in 2004, issued standard 62.2. I'll read what it says on the cover. Ventilation and acceptable indoor air quality in low-rise residential buildings. I think that means it's a residential ventilation standard. Uh, what that will tell you, give you some guidelines as to how much air you should bring into your house, depending on how, how much floor air you have, how much volume, and how many people are going to occupy it. Uh, it tells you a little bit um, about how you might address that in the various climates. Now there, bringing back to your question, Cliff, how you address ventilation varies tremendously between, say, Pittsburgh and Fort Myers. You mean because of the smoke stacks in Pittsburgh? Or? Uh, well, no. 30 years ago, that would have been a problem, but uh, 
right. shut down that lousy steel industry. Now we don't have to worry about smokestacks anymore. Buildings in the north is perfectly, is perfectly healthy to exhaust them. Uh, if you have a very quiet exhaust fan in your bathroom and it runs 24-7 through the winter, uh, that might not be too bad an idea in Pittsburgh. That could just devastate, absolutely devastate a building in Fort Myers. Uh, we need to use our exhaust in very, very uh, limited amounts. We try to keep our buildings at least neutral and positive if we can. So the whole the whole philosophy of ventilation is just completely different in the south and in the north. And that's that's where the standard is gets in a little bit of trouble. It just isn't that clear yet. It, it, in my opinion, it probably doesn't offer quite enough guidance in, the, in that regard. You know, your concepts seem a little bit different than what I would consider the mainstream. Did you learn this as, as part of engineering, or did you learn this from practical experience? Um, I learned it from, from practical experience. I learned it from building science. The, uh, uh, the, the, particularly when we talk about residential ventilation, uh, it's, it's trying to address two sources of pollution, people and the building, products, VOCs, things in the building itself. Um, then once you do ventilate, uh, while you're making the people healthy, healthy and comfortable, whether you like it or not, you're having impact on the, on the building, uh, on what you're doing to condensation and so forth and the building materials. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Uh, I, I develop my, my ideas on ventilation from from a combination of HVAC and building science. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And what advice would you give consumers or environmentalists, indoor environmentalists, with respect to HVAC problems in, in different climates of the country or just in general? Um, probably, uh, let's see, what do I do in, in general? Uh, Let's see, I would tell everybody that they need a dehumidifier. I'd probably tell everybody to cycle a fan. I'd tell everybody uh, to change your filter less, not more often. Uh, we've got everybody running around like the sky is falling, changing filters about every five minutes. Uh, very few people realize that a filter has to get dirty before it becomes a filter. Uh, I would uh, um, probably if I could leave people with, with one thought on, on, on residential air conditioning is take much care in selecting the size, the size of your equipment. Uh, smaller is better. Uh, unfortunately, practically every new system that goes in is too big, and uh, that has its own set of problems. And why is smaller better, Andy? Uh, because we get better dehumidification. In other words, the uh, air conditioners are capable of removing moisture from the air, but only if they're running. If the air conditioner is too large, the thermostat shuts it off, it doesn't run, and we get no dehumidification. <laughs> now, I, the second thing you mentioned, I, I it broke up just a little bit. I, I believe it had to do with leaving the fan on or off. or in, in humid, For air conditioning, particularly in humid climates, we recommend cycling the fan. See, for, for 30, 40 years, we've been telling people that you need to have set the, the little switch on your fan on the thermostat to on, from water to on. So the fan runs all the time for, for constant circulation. It's turning out that that's a bad idea because it evaporates the water, the condensation off your cooling coil back into the air as soon as the compressor shuts off. Okay. 
the and the large and the more oversized the air conditioner is, the more often the compressor shuts off, the more often that water evaporates back into the airstream and the less dehumidification it gets. So re- research, like particularly at FSEC, has shown that you can substantially enhance uh, the uh, dehumidification you get out of your air conditioner by cycling the fan rather than running it constantly. I think that's a pretty common misconception that people have that they should run that fan constantly and not uh, just leave it to cycle. Why wouldn't they have that misconception? We in the industry have been telling them that since they're, you know, as long as I've been around. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's get it straightened out now, Andy. That's, that's what we're here for. That's, that's great. And uh, Cliff had a, a couple of questions that we could finish up with, and then uh, we'll see how people can contact you and go from there. Actually, right. it's either a two. Actually, it's either a two-part, the one-part, or a no-part. And I'm going to leave that up to you in terms of the questions. What I was wondering is, what was the worst thing that you've ever seen in terms of an HVAC? Something that you just thought was appalling, deplorable. And the second part was, what was the most humorous thing that you've ever seen in an HVAC system? You know, something crazy that people were trying to do. Oh. You know what? You almost caught me without words there. I, I think I've seen too much uh, stuff that's uh, <laughs> too uh, <laughs> too too stupid. Um, probably, um, and frankly, this is more to answer your question, Cliff. I can't say it's, 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 it's the best thing that comes to mind is um, for some reason, engineers set a minimum airflow to classrooms. I have no idea where they're coming from, but uh, they... A, a, a classroom uh, needs, let's say, three and a half to four tons of air conditioning just for, for close enough for government work, all right? Okay. Um, that's when the kiddies are there and the sun is shining. So if you have a full class of 30 kids at 4 p.m. on July 13th, you need the four tons. All the rest of the time, we don't. At night, when you turn the lights off and the kids go home, that probably falls below one ton. Uh, yet every engineer sets the minimum airflow if it's a VAV system, that's a pretty common system in classrooms, is about 40% airflow. In other words, if, if we're bringing 1,500 CFM in at peak, uh, you'll tell you to set the controls so that you're bringing in close to 600 CFM all the time, regardless. So the classroom sits there at night uh, with a ton and a half of cooling spilling into it. The classroom gets colder and colder. The thermostat's out of the picture because the minimum airflow, minimum air setting takes over. And we sit there and uh, make ice cubes all night. Uh, I, 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 I guess we're getting more utilization out of the classroom. At the classroom during the day, we turn into a mold factory at night. That's We've got a question, actually, from one of our listeners. And we, he would like to know what you would suggest in a hot, dry, mixed climate such as exists in northern Arizona, where it's mostly very dry, but they have monsoons. I'm sorry. What, what, I understand the climate. What, what, what's this question? Okay, the question was, what would you suggest, um, I, I guess in terms of an HVAC system for a mixed climate such as exists in northern Arizona where it's mostly dry, but they do have some monsoons? Um, hmm. I, I always should pass on that. I've never, I've never worked in a really dry climate. Uh, I, I think they can, I, I, the closest I've come to the climate is, is Los Angeles. And uh, it's a, we put in pretty much. I'd put in pretty much the same thing I'd put anywhere else, except uh, I would worry less about humidity, and I'd worry a lot less about uh, the control of outside air. Outside air uh, is very critical in my climate, 
in the dry in an Arizona climate, uh, I'd worry worry less about it. Yeah, I think that's an example of an. I'm, I'm sorry. I thought that was a good example of a climate with two problems. Los Angeles, it's dry, but they have air pollution. Maybe they don't have this monsoons, but they got. Well, do, you, do you ever recommend the installation of uh, humidifiers as opposed to dehumidifiers? No. I mean, I did up the first 30 years of my career. Now, absolutely not. I, I, so you're I, reformed then, right? There might be some, they, like a process application, uh, electronic equipment might need, a, or a, uh, uh, you might need humidity to keep uh, medical equipment from sparking or something, and so, you know, setting off an explosion for oxygen, some weird thing like that. But uh, absent some unusual requirement, you should never add humidity. All right. We will. Uh, although now I'm a little worried, Andy. I've got the pot on top of my uh, wood burner at home, and uh, it seems to <laughs> seems to help me out a little bit with respect to the uh, relative humidity getting below 10 percent or 15 percent. As, uh, as, as long as there's no mold growing in the pot, you're fine. Okay, I'll keep an eye out for that. <laughs> All right, well, we have uh, covered quite a bit, but uh, what we always like to do is ask, is, is there anything that you would like to add that maybe we left out, something that, you know, that is maybe a pet peeve or just something that you feel that listeners would be interested in hearing about? Just on the IAQ side, uh, it ties back in not to exactly the issues you were talking about to Elise about, but her work is uh, the thing she does is, for those of you who are out there diagnosing mold and moisture problems, do just that. Leave leave everything but your eyes, ears, and nose in the van when you first go in the building in the house. Figure out, diagnose the problem first. Try to figure out what's going on that's causing or where the moisture is coming from. Then and only then proceed with testing to demonstrate and to prove your hypothesis. Excellent advice. And uh, let me see real quickly if uh, Dr. Wild is still on the line here. Dieter, are you still there? Yep, no, I'm still here. Dieter, I was just curious if you had any questions you'd like to add. But actually, well, both of our guests are still on here, and I know you've met Andy up at the uh, – oh, I'm sorry, the first one's not on. Andy's still on, though. Um, I know you've probably talked a little bit at some of the summer camp events, but uh, was there anything you wanted to add? Well, yeah, I, I, I think I see a problem. Or Like Andy and like I saw, uh, I was more interested in industrial ventilation systems. But the problems are pretty much the same. And uh, he sees, you know, screwed up jobs left and right. That's exactly what I saw. There were no drawings. It looked as though it was an afterthought. Oh, we put a duct in here and maybe a fan, and, and hopefully it's going to work. I think one of the, the biggest problems is we don't teach that anymore. And people are not even aware of it. You know, I got a master's degree in mechanical engineering. I didn't have any ventilation courses. You know, I got them by accident much later in my life. They are wonderful and very good courses. Most people don't don't know about those, and if you don't learn you know, the basics um, during the time when you are supposed to learn it, you forget about it. And uh, Andy mentioned that yeah, there are a couple of people who are in charge. They are put there in charge because they screwed up every other job they ever were given. And I said yeah, now you take care of this, and yeah, you hope to get rid of the poor guy. <laughs> 
and um, that that has been my experience out in the field. Well, thank you for that uh, added uh, input there, Dr. Wow. We always appreciate your experience. And it sounds like you two would uh, get along really well. Uh, probably we do. Could share we some do. Good, good war stories, huh? I don't know. I know. Dieter, Dieter has Dieter has a triple digit IQ though, Joe. <laughs> That's why I hang out with him. He he makes me look smarter than I am. I just kind of ask questions and then he answers them. So what, what, what Dieter says is, is tragic. HVAC is based on a few simple fundamentals of physics and thermodynamics. It's arguably the absolute easiest engineering field. If there's anything easier in engineering, I can't think what it was. I'm I'm not dumb, but I'm a poor student. That's kind of why I went into it. Yet, that little bit of formal education is simply not available anywhere to anyone, and that's where our problems begin. So I yeah. would say amen to everything Dieter just said. I see, I see it everywhere. They play around with huge equations, which nobody could have solved in the old days without a computer, and they are tinkering with that, and we are losing and we are forgetting that there are such things as nuts and bolts and washers around, <laughs> and left-hand and right-hand thread, and uh, I, uh, we, we, don't, we don't teach it anymore. Right, right. Gravity. Gravity is a wonderful thing. Um, second law of thermodynamics. Amazing stuff if you just, you know, take a look at it. Yeah. Maybe we should give Andy credit for answering the trivia question today. <laughs> At least part of it, yes. I don't know if you heard the trivia question or not, Andy. But I sure did. Uh, that was a good one. Okay, <laughs> good, very good. And we have, Elisa, are you back on the line? Yes. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to ask Andy or that you wanted to add? No, I, I just think that Andy's one of the smartest men I know in, in the uh, energy field, so I'm glad that uh, we're able to have him on the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks for coming back on. Peter, was there anything you wanted to add uh, that Elisa had discussed with respect to the S520 issue? Yeah, you know, I, I sit here. I think it's a terrible problem that is there, and I was trying to figure out why we have a problem over there. Is it that there were a couple of old-timers who did it their way 10 and 20 years ago and who don't want to change when all of a sudden you know, the rules of the game are being played? Uh, I, 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 I'm not surprised that there were problems when all of a sudden say, hey, here are the new rules and that is how we don't do it. And I said, oh, we never ever did it and we did a good job. Why the hell do we do it now? Sometimes I, I, I read that in between, and I don't know whether that may have been part of the problem. I don't know. I hope it was, actually. <laughs> I, I, would, I would comment on what Dieter said there. Um, the problem with, with HVAC when we started, nobody really knew how any of this stuff worked, and we just went with things we understood, like 10 or 15 CFM per person outside the air, and try that for 100 years to see how that worked is uh, there was no inclination to research. Very little of our early information was ever researched. Now there is uh, at least an interest in research, and piece by piece, uh, issue by issue, uh, things we do are getting to be researched, and now we have some idea why we should or shouldn't be doing them or, or what we ought to be doing. 
Uh, and uh, so I'm, that, from that standpoint, I am encouraged as we, as we go into the future. And then, of course, the old guys have to listen to the research and wait. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I find it interesting when I'm in the same room with you old guys, and uh, I'm, I'm not far behind, but uh, it's very interesting how sometimes that research leads to these aha moments, and then someone in the back of the room says, well, you know, we did that 30 years ago, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now suddenly it's an aha moment here, you know. But uh, I was just curious, I see um, IEC, uh, is someone on from IEC there? Did you have a question? Hello. Oh. Hey, Hello. Joe, this is Steve Sauer. How are you doing? Steve, how are you? Great, thanks. Did you have a question for any of our guests? We're all on here. This is great. We love this. Yeah, I, I do have a question for Elisa. Hi, Elisa. Hi, um, Steve. Do you feel that there has been any backlash against you or any of the others who have resigned at this stage in the game? Because, I don't know, it could be seen as, uh, you know, this series of resignations and subsequent complaints are just like a case of sour grapes or maybe even an attempt at sabotage have you you know uh has anybody said that to you <laughs> wow what a question <laughs> Leave um, it to the uh the reporter from the iec connection to come in and give you a tough one thank you steve <laughs> and Lisa, we, we understand if you uh <laughs> if you have to pass but let's just give it a shot if you would I would just say that, of course, anytime someone raises objections to the way things are being conducted, um, there's a potential for um, questioning their motives. And certainly this is no different. Um, and, and there's people on both sides of the fence. You know, it's, it's either you completely support it or you completely don't, and, and not a whole lot of in-betweens. And, and I think that now that the dust has settled, you know, it's been a week since I filed the appeal, um, some of that has gone away, and, and people are starting to look at the issues as opposed to the personal or personalities behind that. The issues need to be addressed regardless of who those personalities are. Okay. You know, it's kind of difficult for leopards to change their spots, and I think you have to look at the industry history that each person has. Alyssa's been in uh, the industry for a while. She has a history. You have to look at the history of the people as well, and you know, they'll come out in the wash. Uh, I think you really handled that, answered that very well. I, I really appreciate the way you handled that answer. Very politically correct, but at the same time, I think you got the point across. Steve, did you have a follow-up? No, that's it. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. It's uh, it's great to have you join us and and ask a question. And uh, Lisa, we we appreciate you joining as well. But Andy, before I get back to you, I did have one thing that I neglected to mention. Lisa, I understand there's a copy of your complaint available for people who are interested in looking at it. Is that on the um, is it on the restoration forum or is it? Has it been posted anywhere? Yes, it is on the Restoration Forum. So that's the, the restorationforum.com? Yeah. And uh, I believe it would be available for any of our listeners that are interested in getting into the 14 points here and uh, seeing a little more detail on 
what is actually a very well laid out, and I don't know whether you had an attorney help you with it or not, but it's uh, very nicely done, and we want to compliment you on that. It's not just, uh, you know, you you do a good job of laying out what the problem is, and then you um, follow up with examples of what leads you to believe it was a problem, and then you also follow up with a solution to the problem, which is what we love to see when people do, um, you know, they oftentimes point out problems, but then don't come back with some type of solution or recommendation. And uh, I think that's important to note. Andy, before you go, uh, can we tell people how they can contact you if they're interested in talking to you? Yes. my I do not have a website. My email is aa. S-K-P-E, that's A-A-S-K-P-E, no punctuation, at S-W-F-L-A dot R-R dot com. That means I'm on Roadrunner in Southwest Florida. Excellent. All right. And uh, Dieter, let's see if we can bring uh, Dr. Wild back in. Dieter, did you have anything else you wanted to add before we sign off? Well, uh, yeah, I I, I will read that, uh, what she wrote there. And I think this is one of those problems um, we are having when you live in a democracy, that there are rules and you got to follow them. You know, you just can't say, hey, we did it that way and I think that is the right way and I always did it that way and I was successful. I don't care what anybody else says. I think yeah, once we start having those rules, they may be painful at times, but... I prefer to follow them and 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 use these protocols to uh, uh, come up with solutions. Well put. Thank you for that input, Dieter. And uh, as always, we uh, thank you for joining us today on Pleasure. the show. This is uh, well. Also, I'd like to uh, thank Andy and Elisa for joining us. And uh, this has been the uh, 14th edition of IAQ Radio. And this is Joe Hughes uh, saying thank you first to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. You're very welcome, Jeff. It's a great pleasure to do this. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. And to Cyber Jockey, who's been handling the controls here, Zach Slotnick. Yep, pleasure. Thank you, Joe. It's wonderful to be here. <laughs> Dieter, thank you very much. Anytime. We appreciate you. Although, you know, maybe you could stay in the country a little more often. We can have you here a little bit more well, often. I, now, you... I have a colleague who uh, warned me that I may have to go to uh, the Virgin Islands with him. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. I, uh, I forgot about that conversation. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can uh, make it a quick trip. Anyhow, this is Joe Hughes, uh, host of IAQ Radio, saying please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. And most importantly, I'd like to thank our growing group of loyal listeners for joining us once again here this week. We'll see you all again next Friday at noon with some more interesting industry talk.